recent actions by some primates of the Anglican Communion in refusing to join Eucharist with others prompts questions about what it means to be gathered at God's table together as a community and how we as Christians share the message of the transfigured Christ with each other and with a broken world. Richard Helmer delivered this sermon on the last Sunday after the Epiphany, February 18, 2007, the Sunday of the Transfiguration. In the name of Christ, transfigured on the mountaintop. Amen. Well, being young and a little bit brash, I'm going to take a verse from St. Paul today and speak with great boldness about some of our archbishops. If you were following the news at all this week, you may have noticed that the head bishops of the Anglican Communion have been meeting in Tanzania wrestling with the tensions of a markedly changed world and church. Now, before uh, the meeting began, there were all kinds of dire predictions made about the inevitable schism that we were going to experience. But much to everyone's surprise, even hot-headed archbishops can be civil to one another, stay in the same room, and actually listen to each other, at least in principle, and just about everyone made it to the meeting, it seems, and, much to everyone's surprise, stayed. Not least of whom, of course, was our new presiding bishop, Catherine Jeffrey Shorey, who, if any of you have been following her, is anything but hot-headed and has probably been one of the calm places in the midst of the storm. Now, aside from formal press briefings each day during the meeting, the primates were specifically asked not to speak with members of the media until the conclusion, which is tomorrow. But, of course, archbishops being archbishops, seven of them did so anyway. And they issued a statement on Friday that made international news. It was posted on the Church of Nigeria's website that they would not receive communion with Catherine Jefford Shorey because the Episcopal Church had not, in their words, repented of our actions in 2003. And here's the old news that many of you already know. In 2003, we consecrated an openly gay bishop who was living in a committed relationship. Okay, so that's old news. We get it now. Now, normally, if you would ask me whether or not we should look to our bishops and archbishops to see what the life of the church is like, I would say, probably in agreement with some bishops I know and love very much, well, no. Because the real life of the church is not found in private meetings and archbishops behaving well or otherwise, of course, but... The real life of the church is found in the tangible relationships of real folk like you and somewhat like me struggling and praying and working with our sisters and brothers at building faithful lives and faithful witness in a very complicated world. It's found in the real witness of bringing healing to a broken people and planet. 
but the actions of seven leaders at the Anglican Communion in boycotting Eucharist with their sister primate did make international news after all. And it said something right or wrong about our global community as Christians and what it means to gather around this table, this table of God together. Now, being Christian and a number of these archbishops avowed evangelicals, they naturally quoted scripture to justify their boycott. And a lot of this didn't make it in the papers, so I wanted to share it with you. The first scripture passage they cited was from the Gospel of Matthew, where Jesus is speaking to his followers. And he says, so when you are offering your gift at the altar... If you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother or sister, and then come and offer your gift. The second was a somewhat more hard-hitting passage by Paul in his first letter to the church in Corinth. If you need to know, it's in the 11th chapter. Paul writes, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be answerable for the body and blood of the Lord. Examine yourselves and only then eat the bread and drink of the cup. For all who eat and drink without discerning the body eat and drink judgment against themselves. And just for good measure, they threw in a familiar quote from our beloved Book of Common Prayer. Ye that do truly and earnestly repent you of your sins and are in love and charity with your neighbors and intend to lead a new life following the commandments of God and walking from henceforth in his holy ways, draw near with faith. We read that this morning at our early service. Oddly enough, it doesn't appear in the context of Holy Communion but in the context of confession. Now, the strange thing is, at least it seems to me, all three of these passages say nothing about determining whether my sister or brother is suited to receive communion with me. They all call instead for me to examine no one other than myself before I approach God's table and take in bread and wine that we call Christ for renewal and transformation. Moreover, this boycott said something strange, it seems to me, about reconciliation, which is part of the bedrock of our Christian faith and tradition. The refusal of the seven archbishops articulated in action that I should not be seeking reconciliation with my sisters and brothers until they have repented, and I might add, to my satisfaction. Now, I can tell by your chuckles, you probably think, too, that's a very strange teaching if you think about it for very long. Because if I were to follow it, I don't know about you, but if I were to follow it, I would never be able to approach God's table. In all honesty, there are people in my life who have caused wounds in me and in those I love, and they have not repented to my satisfaction. So if I wait to work at reconciling with them until they have fully repented, in my view, well, I will probably be waiting for a very long time. And of course, 
If God followed this rule, waiting for us to repent to God's satisfaction before offering us reconciliation, well, then I suppose Peter, James, and John would have stayed on the lake fishing, wouldn't they? And there would have been no transfiguration for the bewildered disciples, and it would all be on our heads to attain perfection before God even really started to bother with us. No pressure, right? Bruce Bauer, in his book, Stealing Jesus, highlights the current tension within broader Christianity, particularly in the American context, as a conflict between, on the one hand, a church of legalism, and on the other hand, a church rooted in love. And while Bauer looks most closely at the context of the United States, I think his essential insight easily extends to Christianity around the world. Now, I might frame it slightly differently, probably in a little bit more of a highfalutin seminarian kind of way, as a church of biblical rules and personal salvation and uniformity on one hand, versus a church of sacramental faith diversity and prophetic action on the other. Prophetic being speaking the truth to the powers of the world and bringing healing to those in need. One of these models of church is what we saw in action this past Friday as the seven primates did what they did and decided to stay away from Holy Communion. Their understanding of Christian rules was not being followed by Catherine Jefford Shorey and the governing bodies of the Episcopal Church in the United States. We had broken their understood mold, rooted as they believe it is in scripture and tradition, and clearly they were and remain offended by that. But the other model of church is about a spiritual faith community that is anchored principally not in legalities and uniformity of belief, but in relationship. A bringing together of people into dynamic life. A dynamic life that is marked by an unpredictable but infinitely compassionate and nurturing and transformational God. One who indeed sees our sins and our weaknesses, but one who is in the process of gracefully turning them into strengths and blessings as we are reborn through Christ in our baptism from the inside out. And it seems to me this is the understanding of church that most of the archbishops pursue as they join with each other despite their disagreements despite worlds of difference in culture and norms and biblical interpretation, as they join with each other around the altar of God's grace. And most of us, of course, living in the messy journey of salvation that we live in, reside somewhere between those two church understandings. We spend a lot of our lives wrestling with whether to judge our neighbor, coping with our grudges, both personal and communal, and trying not to nurse them as we come forward for the broken bread and shared cup. At our best, we witness simply by humble word and example. 
we examine ourselves, and then we put ourselves at some risk by loving our neighbors in community, even if we cannot understand them, even if we continue to strongly disagree with them. We gather around the table of Christ's reconciliation. We put ourselves with others into the loving hands of God's grace. And while we try to do better next time, we bank on God's power to transform, to transfigure our lives anyway. Today is the Sunday of the Transfiguration. It's the final Sunday before Lent begins, before we begin, a period, at least we hope, a period of not so much examining our neighbors, but of examining ourselves and our life together in community. Jesus has taken Peter, James, and John up on the mountain to pray, and he is suddenly transfigured before them. The Greek word is metamorphote. He undergoes a metamorphosis before his first and most beloved disciples. Appearing with him is Moses, the bringer of the law to ancient Israel. In many respects, Moses embodies the legal side of the Judeo-Christian tradition. On Jesus' other side appears Elijah, embodying in a very traditional understanding of this gospel text the prophetic witness of our shared faith to a world in need. Jesus transfigured, revealed as Christ, as the Messiah, brings both law and prophecy together into fulfillment. He brings them together as a manifestation of God in frail humanity. And no sooner has this revelation been given, Jesus and his disciples are headed back down the mountain and are in the midst of the crowds with Jesus healing them. For the author of Luke's gospel and for us as the Christian community, this is a deep reminder that law is only valuable when it is life-giving, and prophecy is only truly prophetic when it ushers in healing, compassion, and justice for those and all of us who so desperately need it. Both of them are embodied in Jesus' actions and teachings, and God's great hope for us as a Christian community is that we come away from the altar released from our grudges and unfettered from holding disagreements against each other. Instead, God wants us to come away transfigured by the word and sacrament into Christ-like beings who can bring hope and healing together to the world around us. In us, God wants love to knit together law and prophecy. Love that yearns to live into the covenants we hold with each other and our creator. And a love that thirsts for true justice for all God's children embodied by the Savior who lives, if nowhere else, in our hearts. We are a community founded first and foremost on love of God and loving our neighbors as ourselves. On which, as Jesus teaches, hangs all the law and the prophets.
To me, that's a beautiful teaching, but most of the time, archbishops and ordinary parishioners in the Episcopal Church and Anglican Communion, both of them alike, will struggle with putting this love first. Some of the time will even struggle with understanding that this is what Jesus was about at the end of the day. We'll struggle with it even when we witness the transfiguration in our own lives and relationships. Peter, in today's story, leaves the mountain wondering how he might build three dwelling places for Moses, Elijah, and Jesus. Totally clueless again. And as someone pointed out in our Bible study this past Wednesday, you know, Peter does what a lot of guys do. When they don't know what else to do, they build something. So that means we're in good company. Even in the best and brightest of our church, even in the head bishops of the Anglican Communion, as we all struggle together in how to live with disagreement, share at God's holy table, and wrestle with a heritage of law and prophecy that can only be reconciled one way, and that is in divine love. Love in which we constantly fall short but a love that calls us, that saves us, and that will never leave us or our neighbors alone. I invite you to join me in living more into that as we look ahead to Lent and ask that God may guide each of us into deeper understanding and compassion, that we may live more fully into that love which is immortal, manifested to us in Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon podcast from the Episcopal Church of Our Savior, Mill Valley, California. We strive to be a welcoming community for those seeking to deepen their relationship with God and to journey in faith with God's people through the breaking of bread and in service to others in Christ's name. You may reach us by phone at 415-388-1907 or through our website, OurSaviorMV.org. That's O-U-R-S-A-V-I-O-U-R-M-V for Mill Valley, dot org. We wish you God's peace, and we hope to be able to greet you in person very soon.